towards the end of our readings from the Gospel of Matthew, trying to comment from a logic standpoint the understanding of some of the sayings of Jesus. We are about to start the chapter number 24, where Jesus speaks about the signs of the end of time. Actually, you are going to see that Jesus speaks on several levels here. And I'm starting first reading and stopping wherever I feel the need to comment. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This prophecy actually came to fulfill literally because the temple of Jerusalem was <coughs> smashed down by the Romans in the year 70 or there around and uh, that was happening like 35 years after Jesus made this prophecy. So basically Jesus was very correct in this prophecy which fulfilled historically. As Jesus was sitting, so it seems like the prophecy which he makes is a prophecy which is like a 35 year prophecy or something like this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of, a of the age? Here, basically, you are going to see that the different prophecies are interlaced. Historians of, who have studied this Historians who have studied this, they have actually noticed that Jesus is speaking, is making prophecies which obviously in time they refer to three different periods of time, one of them being immediate and it refers to the 30 year time in one generation which refers to the big trouble which the uh, Jewish people had with the Roman Empire around the year 70 and another one referring to the very end of time the end of Kali Yuga, as we say uh, in the Hindu text, as we say through yoga. Therefore, it is a little bit difficult because Jesus here speaks in an interlaced way and some things refer to a far distant time, some of them are very close and actually Jesus puts them all together. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Basically, the, all these things with nations rising against <coughs> nations, earthquakes and famine and so on, they did not happen in the 35-year period which preceded the fall of the temple, the destruction of the temple and all those historical things uh, in those days. Therefore, this obviously refers to the end of time because here Jesus says very clearly, but the end is still to come. 
He does not refer to a time where there will be trouble. He refers to a time where there is end to come, and that refers, of course, to the end of Kali Yuga, to the end of the cosmic cycle. That is why he gives the signals, he gives all kinds of signs, which unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever, they fit very well with the signs of the times where we live, but actually many people can argue that the whole human history is full of shit like this, that nations raising against nations and famine and whatever. But uh, it seems to be more and more acute because of this global thing. A hundred years ago only, we started having a more global perception of this planet because of radio, communication, instant travel almost, and things like this. And that is why when you say there will be earthquake in various places of the world, how should you know this in 1800? It would take uh, three months before you heard that there was an earthquake some other place of the world. And therefore, uh, it appears much more coherent when we speak about it in modern history where we have this global feeling. One of the first things with Jesus starts, with which Jesus starts here, is that he says, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, whatever. This kind of thing is very, very peculiar. First of all, try to analyze the situation of Christianity in modern times. There are more than 3,000 different churches, sects and Christian denominations, and each and every one claims that they have got the truth and they are the Messiah, and when the, the day of judgment will come, they will be right and everybody else will be wrong. The Mormons think that they hold the truth, the Jehovah's Witnesses think that they hold the truth, the Adventists or the Baptists or the Pentecostals or whatever, each and every one thinks that they hold the truth, including the major lineage holders, such as the Catholics, the Orthodox, whatever, the main trend uh, forms of Christianity. And basically, what Jesus says is that there is going to be a lot of confusion. Uh, a thousand years ago, perhaps this confusion was not as big. Today, this confusion is overwhelming. So many things have developed in Christianity that it's really easy to say that these people say, I am the Messiah, I am the Messiah, I am or this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah. Everybody claims to show you the real Messiah or whatever, not to mention that some people actually physically claim to incorporate, to be that or to have access to that. This fact is very important and it might uh, confuse you because Jesus again comes in his dualistic <coughs> mood and he all the time presents spirituality as a struggle between good and evil. Basically, when Jesus says, uh, watch out that no one deceives you, he basically announces, watch out, because there is a lot of forces and a lot of factors out there that try to deceive you. That they said this deception is not something new. This deception, uh, as he accused earlier, it worked in the case of the prophets. Prophets came and people killed them. Weren't those people deceived? Of course, those people were bitterly deceived. Uh, this deception, therefore, is not something new. It worked in his own time. Jesus came and was a person full of spirituality, and he was the heartbringer of something marvelous, and many people could not recognize him, but actually they were grudgy against him, and they tried to 
destroy him in one way or another. It's not a new thing. Even when Buddha preached the message of Buddhism, Buddha was not received by everybody with enthusiasm. There were, yeah, when I read the story of the life of the Buddha, I found out with surprise there were some of his ex-relatives and some local king and whatever in the places where he lived and acted and taught who were actually quite angry at him and they tried to murder him. They sent at some time a mad elephant against him to stamp on him, to stampede on him, to trash him, to whatever. So basically, even Buddha, in an environment like India, which would be like much more Ahimsa at those days at least, and still is confronted with this opposition. So basically, this is illusion is everywhere, and it says, yes, suddenly we have a Buddha walking on the surface of the earth, suddenly we have a Jesus, a Messiah, or whatever, walk, walking on the surface of the earth, and people don't recognize him, and on the contrary, people accuse him and try to destroy him and whatever. What is this? This is deception on a big scale. That's why it says, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Therefore, Jesus implicitly announces that one of the names of the game is deception. One of the biggest risks which you have in spirituality is to be deceived. That means, how on earth do people quit spirituality? Because most of you here, especially when you are in your best shape and when you are awakened, you know that what I am saying is true, and you know that spirituality is the greatest gift which you can give to yourself. You know that if you truly love yourself, you are going to try to give yourself samadhi and immortality. You know that it is not worth wasting your life in all kinds of other ridiculous pursuits when spirituality should have your heart, should have the priority. I'm not saying that people cannot do other things, like even Ramakrishna was going and watching movies in, in the 19th century, that is. And therefore, it's not that the spiritual people cannot do something else, but it's a matter of priority. Where is your heart? What is truly important in your life? And therefore, again I'm saying, what Jesus is saying here is that watch out, because the game is a game of deception. The power of the demonic forces, or better said, let's be consistent with our definition, we said that the demonic forces are those which are middle of the way. The real, real bad ones are called satanic forces or diabolic forces. And Jesus says, the name of the game for the diabolic forces is to deceive you. This is how you stop people from doing spirituality. By luring them into something secondary. By luring them into some back street, into some dead end, into some secondary alley where they go and basically don't do anything. And therefore, this is exactly it. You do and you do and you search and you search and suddenly you are deceived. That is why Jesus says, watch out that you are not deceived. That means when you understand what is right, when you understand what, when you have these moments of clarity and revelation and when you truly wake up a little bit and you see what life is made of and what is important, then you should never forget that. You should like take a vow with yourself that I will never fall asleep again from this moment of clarity which I have today. And that is why it's a matter of deception. Remember that that's the basic thing. It's deception. That means the, the fundamental deception is first of all that people don't believe that there is deception. Naive people believe that everybody knows everything and the truth is self-evident and clear as crystal. Look around. Look at the way the people live. The, the truth is not self-evident. 
People live in confusion. People fumble in a dark universe and they live their lives sometimes like animals, sometimes like Shivananda says. People die like worms. They live in a complete... They swarm in an environment which is completely unspiritual and confused and it's a total waste of time and of precious lives in doing nothing. And therefore, the basic problem is deception. And even once you wake up, you can wake up for five years and then be drowned by the worries of this world and whatever. And Jesus says, don't get deceived. Remember that the first stage for being deceived is being lulled into the fake security, into the false security, that there is no deception. It is what René Guénon, the great French metaphysician in the 20th century, said very clearly, it has been taken even in movies, I have seen it in the usual suspects and so on, he has said that the greatest trick <coughs> the devil has pulled over mankind is making people believe that he does not exist. And this is all those kind of skeptics and rationalists who go around and they say, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in the devil. There is no devil, there is no evil forces, there is no nothing. And basically such people, they will live completely unaware of the fact that they can be harmed by something. For them, harm is just death, just to fall down and crack your knees. That's what harm means for them, a purely biological thing. They never look at the harm which can be done to their soul. And basically such people have no guard, they, don't, they lower their guard and they are completely, completely defenseless. Somebody who is not afraid to be deceived will never watch out for it. And Jesus says, watch out that you shall not be deceived. Therefore the name of the game is very clear. Many people, they hate it and that's the demon speaking because... The demons are angry of the fact that some people are vigilant all the time and they say, I'm not going to sell my soul, I'm not going to waste myself. Therefore, the demon gets angry. And therefore, if the demon is playing a game of kind of, uh, look at Walter. Walter is so ridiculous, all the time afraid of the devil. It's like, what would the devils want? The devils would want that Walter will say, well, actually, no, no. No, no, I'm not so. No, let's just have fun and so on. Then they can grab him. And therefore, it's just a game which simply tries to hypnotize you, like in the jungle book. Trust in me, there is no danger. Sleep, sleep, there is no danger, there is nothing. Jesus all the time comes with this and he says, you must be kidding. The demonic forces are up and kicking. They are about to pull the carpet from under your feet. And you should always be vigilant. You should not allow yourself deceived. Once you know what is right, you should stick to what is right and you should not allow it to happen. That is why, remember that indeed the greatest trick the demonic force pulls is first of all convincing a huge percentage of the people of this humanity that it does not exist. And then if you don't think that the devil exists, then what can harm you? There is no harm, there is no demons, there is no negative forces, there is no perdition, there is no hell, there is no devil, there is no nothing. You be, you can do whatever you want. And then you bite the dust when you discover that it was not true actually. And therefore Jesus says, don't lull yourself into a fake security. Try always to be aware that you are playing a dangerous game that this game of evolution is in its own way a dangerous game, and therefore be aware, don't let yourself 
deceived by all kinds of ridiculous things. And he says, there will many come many in my name claiming I am Messiah and will deceive many. Then he becomes more specific. <coughs> then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Here this prophecy is on double level because it has happened already 20-30 years after Jesus was not there. Nero and Caligula, they started the big persecution of Christianity and basically people indeed were persecuted for just being Christian, for just uh, respecting the name of Jesus, worshipping the name of Jesus. And the same thing was, is happening again today. If you look again at the trends today, I'm finding more and more that the young generation, they come up with ideas like this. Oh, I hate Christianity. I don't like Christianity. I am not a Christian. It's kind of very fashionable for old people, either from America or from Denmark or from wherever they are, to go and to say, I'm not going to pay tax for the church. Uh, like, they have some facilities of withdrawing from paying state tax for it. I am not, I don't want this. And if you read, if you go in a New Age bookshelf and you read a hundred books of New Age bullshit, 90 of them keep talking against Christianity, which is a pretty interesting sign and it's kind of, you know, approximately what kind of message is this. Simply because, not because Christianity is always good, because there are a lot of aberrant sects and there have been a lot of abuses. I'm not talking about the institution. But it's like the British say, you shall not throw the baby with the water in the bathtub. That means the person of Jesus is marvelous, and the message of the heart, the message of compassion and forgiveness, this message of considering God your Father, and all the brilliant things which Jesus brings, those are a treasure which is unique in the history of mankind, and you cannot just throw them like this, just because some priests were assholes, or just because some people misbehaved, or whatever. But that's what it is being tried to do. All this propaganda, even the Hollywood movies and everything, they all the time point to the fact, even the media whips out immediately, the press, the priests are pedophiles, the church is corrupt, death is it's all the time taking in bold relief all the shit, like all the time trying to turn people off any form of Christian feeling. It's very modern, not to have anything Christian in it, and I'm talking this about people who were Christian, because, okay, the people who live in whatever, in Iraq or whatever, and they were born Muslim and were, were whatever, others from other religions, the Jewish people and others, they can say, well, we weren't there, and maybe some are opening up right now towards this truth of Jesus. But we are talking even about the people of the Western culture, who more or less proclaim themselves of being of Christian descent, and where actually Christianity itself has become a blame. I remember when I was in Denmark, it's like, it's, it's typical, it's a typical attitude. I'm telling you something which is typical. I'm, I, there was an Orthodox priest who lived in Malmö in Sweden, and he was crossing with a boat to Denmark once a month <coughs> to talk with a community, with a small expat community of Orthodox people living in Copenhagen. And I asked, I was talking with this guy, I discovered uh, that we were born in the same geographical area, and I was talking with him and so on, and uh, he said it's incredible how evil the people have become, and what kind of enmity. He said, I am an orthodox priest, I am not doing anything arrogant or whatever, that means 
So I'm belonging to something which people don't even know really what it is. They have never been into an Orthodox church and so on. And he says, sometimes I am sailing on... She said, last week I was sailing on the boat from uh, Malmo to Copenhagen. It's a half an hour ride on a speed boat. And he said, I was sailing on the boat and there was one of these black leather guys, one of these modern, uh, you know, black leather type of uh, anarchic uh, people. He saw that I was a priest and he came and he spit me in the face just like this. He said, he says it's kind of, and very often young people have this kind of attitude. This is exemplificative. The MTV culture is a culture which is uh, under the guise of the fact that, oh, we should become free, and uh, yes, all those abuses which were done, people are trying to throw the baby with the water in the bathtub, like jumping into a complete denial of some values which actually are way beyond the institution. Because remember, very often, if you take like the Catholic Church, which is the most representative uh, numbers, perhaps, church in the Western culture, you can say, yeah, but the Catholic Church did a lot of shit and a lot of abuses, and we can all start saying again, crusades, inquisition, whatever. And it's kind of, there is no forgiveness. What some people did a thousand years ago, or 500 years ago, we have to blame it on some people of today. But uh, the point is, that again I'm saying, Christianity is not represented by the Catholic Church necessarily. That's an institution. It can be very well that the Pope in Rome is not a very spiritual person himself. He's more a social activist or whatever, even if he is that. That is why it's completely ridiculous to try to equate the message of Jesus with certain institutions. If indeed the Catholic Church did violence and did this and did that and very often promoted war or whatever it promoted, obviously that is not the teaching of Jesus who says when somebody slaps you on one cheek you should turn the other as well and all the rest of the things which you have heard. And basically that's why it's completely ridiculous to use the hate against an institution at the same time to try to destroy the fundamental message which is so very precious, so very valuable. So it's like we try to forget about selflessness, we try to forget about frantic love of God, we, like, we try to forget about aspiration, we try to forget about priorities, and we try to forget about selfless love, because I don't know which Pope in the year 1500 did, well, I don't know what shit. Well, God be with him. He will take the judgment of God as everybody else. But it doesn't mean that I have it now to lose all my faith and to lose all my respect for everything which is sacred or divine because the message of Jesus contains in it so many things which are directly divine just because of some institutional fuck-up done by the I don't know whom, I don't know when. And because of this, remember that this thing, when Jesus says that you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me, is something which refers to the early Christianity, but it's again a sign of the late Kali Yuga. It starts appearing again. The more and more you would be a fundamentalistic person, like if you are an Amish or whatever, you know, somebody really fundamentalistic, even if you are not done crusades and inquisition and other things, you would still be persecuted and mocked 
and hated like, ah, that person, ah, these are old-fashioned people, and now ah, we don't want to hear about that. We live in a new world now. It's a brave new world out here. It's kind of what? We are throwing the baby with water in the bathtub because we cannot respect something. And this is basically something which is inspired by the demons. Only the demons can inspire to whisper in the ears of all these uh, anarchic young people, yeah, hate everything which is spiritual, yeah, go for it, and so on. It's obviously not the angels which inspire such people to have such attitudes. Therefore, remember, some things may be wrong, but we have to mend them in the right way. It is right that in this world, some of you can be disagreeing with the institutions of Christianity, that I don't know what the Catholic institution did this and that. Sure, I can disagree with that, but at the same time I have to be mild, tolerant, forgiving, and most of all, I have to be constructive. If I destroy something and I cannot build anything instead, what will be left? Nothing will be left. There will be left only emptiness, and then the demons can indeed dance the dance of joy. And therefore... This prophecy of Jesus is beating to two different uh, levels. At that time, he says, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. I don't know you, but to me this sounds like New Age and Kali Yuga big time, like many people leaving their faith and false prophets. Today, the modern world, especially this New Age thing, is full of false prophets. It's full of all kinds of images, a la, I don't know, Master Maitreya or uh, Saint Germain or all kinds of ascended masters and weird theories which are simply trying to replace the divine figures of history with all kinds of abra abracadabra, Tom, Dicks and Harrys which belong to, which are basically not what they are supposed to be. So in this New Age subculture, we are typically in the world of false prophets. It's true, we must admit, it happens even in modern yoga, that many modern, many gurus of yoga are a bit of false prophets and false messiahs at the same time, because uh, I don't want to give necessarily names, I don't want to uh, kind of get focus on anyone, but there are situations in which in yoga there are people who appear as gurus, and at the same time, history demonstrates them to be fakes, phony, crooks, liars, or simply complete dull ignorance, like uh, some people are just uh, promoting some forms of gymnastic, and some people respect them as being gurus. You cannot com really compare Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, who is a real enlightened being, with some Tom, Dick and Harry, who, because he bends three times over and puts his legs behind his neck, he is now promoted to be a big guru and a wise man. We should have common sense and see the difference because Ramakrishna is Ramakrishna and uh, the others are just uh, pygmies compared to them. So in this way, uh, this, this image is very classic. It resounds very much with Kali Yuga, with the later days, with the, with the end of days when indeed this happens. Look around and you will see it happening. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. What a beautiful expression. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love will grow cold. When love increases, wickedness decreases. When wickedness increases, love grows cold. Love dies, love decreases. 
That is why this world is a world which is thirsty of love. It is a world which is needy of love. We are simply witnessing an increase of wickedness, which is unfortunately a lack of love. Therefore, more people learn to love, and more people learn to love purely from the heart, more people learn to love selflessly, and more people learn to love divinely, more the wickedness will be diminished. That's why love is the cure for this world. Love is what is needed a lot. A world without love is a world which turns into wickedness ultimately. And uh, here, it, this expression is marvelous. So the, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Basically, what Jesus suggests, and he is not the only one, John in the Apocalypse suggested even more clearly, and many prophets in time have suggested this, is that the pressure on the real spiritual people to give up their spirituality. Remember, this is not only about Christians. I'm not related to the institution. I'm not talking about the Catholics or the Adventists or whatever. It has nothing to do with the institution. It's those people who respect the spiritual eternal values. Like, for example, Yogananda Paramahamsa was born from a Hindu family. He was a Hindu yogi. He was yogi to the bone, but at the same time he speaks so many times and so beautifully about his love and respect for Jesus that he loves so much and that he feels and so on. This is a yogi who is unbiased. That means because he is awakened to something spiritual, Hindu or no, non-Hindu, Christian or non-Christian, he cannot stop himself from respecting what is indeed first class in spirituality from what is indeed. That is why I'm not talking here about the institution when Jesus speaks about it, stands firm to the end. It's not an institutional allegiance. I'm not saying that you should just stick to your Christian church and stay by it till the end. It's not about this. Maybe the church would like to turn it in this way. It's standing firm onto your spiritual values. The modern world is trying to destroy the spiritual values. It's the sad message which I have delivered, I've seen delivered in that horrible movie called Seven, where this maniacal serial murderer, he criticizes in the end, and the criticism is unfortunately bitter and true, but unfortunately it doesn't come from the heart. He doesn't find a Jesus-like solution to the problem of the world. This man says, look, I have punished the seven capital sins and sins which were considered horrendous and crying to heaven 200 years ago. And everybody 200 years ago, if you did one of these, would say you are, you are wasting your soul, you are losing your soul. Be careful, you are on the road to perdition. And today everybody does them and they are considered normal, such as all those seven capital sins which you probably know better than I do and everybody tolerates them, you know. It's like, well, Walter is a lawyer, and because he is a lawyer, he lies as easy as he talks. So basically, everybody shrugs their shoulders and says, well, you know, lawyers are forced by their job to tell lies. Really? That means why should it be accepted that people should lie bold-facedly and shame-facedly like this? Why should it be accepted? It's the world in which we live. It's a world of perdition. It's a Kali Yuga. And that is why Jesus says, the, But he who stands firm till the end will be saved. Because the thing is that very few people in this world, they dare to be decent and to believe in the spiritual things. If you believe in things which your ancestors, let's suppose those of you who come from a Christian culture, and it's valid for all the others, 
whatever you are, Islamic or Jewish or whatever, people 200 years ago, compared to today, the people 200 years ago would have been considered fanatics, deep, deeply rooted fanatics. They would have been considered really, really fundamentalistic, old-fashioned. And what did God change in 200 years and did the rules of the game change? No, only in the minds of people they changed. And that is why today, if you behave like you were from the 1500s, everybody will say, man, you are so old-fashioned, you don't tell lies and you still believe in this and you can, it's kind of, it's preposterous, outrageous. I was reading two years ago or whatever, I was reading an article in the main trend Hindu newspaper in Hindustan Times or whatever, and there was a smart woman, one of these smart new journalists, uh, you know, selling their soul for uh, writing smart things in the newspapers, and uh, she ended an article, I don't know who believed in what, and she said, to believe in this, it is almost as scandalous as believing in the Devi, like believing in the goddesses. Then I saw them and said, well, I believe in the Devi. We all believe in yoga, in the goddesses of Tantra. What's so scandalous? This smart journalist of the 20th century, emancipated woman, considered that there was nothing more preposterous, even the criminal things which she was describing in her article, were almost as preposterous as believing in the Devi. Like, believing in the Devi is a kind of, you know, the last thing. And then I said, yeah, right, I am a 15th century character, you know. I'm born in the 20th century, but for most people around, I believe in things which they believe in the... I'm, I'm not adapted to this time. I'm like, indeed, I'm old-fashioned. I'm fundamentalistic. This is what I am. And uh, the funny part is that I'm surrounded by this kind of people, because those who think alike, they gather together, they congregate. And basically, this is the thing. You are tempted by this world not to be so fundamentalistic. Ah, blow out the steam, chill down a little bit. It's not that bad. Don't be so fanatic. Don't be so stern. Don't be so firm. Hey, yeah, you are guiding yourself after such stiff principles, like you are born 300 years ago. But that's the truth. The soul doesn't change. The spirit doesn't change. God doesn't change. Therefore, some people who are trying to present that now, suddenly it's okay to do a lot of things, this is the delusion that Jesus is warning you. And that's why he says, the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. Basically what he says is, as the, as the end of time comes, pressure increases. There is more and more pressure to compromise, to be modern. Don't be old-fashioned. Don't live like in the 17th century. And therefore, Jesus simply says, resist till the end. That means it becomes almost unbearable in the end, but then you'll have to resist. And he says, false prophets, persecution, and everybody will hate you, or whatever. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So basically, he describes a situation where the message of Jesus is global, and then he says, and the end, and then the end will come. And then there comes a real weird formulation, which uh, apparently refers to something like a nuclear war, no more and no less. Listen how it sounds in the words of Jesus. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes that desolation, in quotation marks, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, 
uh, here indeed it's a strange formulation which is the holy place it's hard to define maybe it means the temple where, like in the location where that temple was in today's old town in Jerusalem whatever the abomination that causes desolation I must admit I have never read the prophet Daniel so I don't know even symbolically what that abomination that causes desolation would be but uh, he means obviously when you see holy places like this or that particular holy place tainted by something which is definitely an abomination then and he says let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains fleeing to the mountains you know it's a classical advice today in place of nuclear war because the mountains absorb radiation so there are some hints there Flying to the, fleeing to the mountains it's uh, what was recommended to the famous Lot in Sodom when the angels of God came to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, Lot was told head to the mountains and don't look back because else you will perish with the others and basically Lot was the only man who was saved from that because he hid in the mountains while Sodom and Gomorrah were flattened down by something which looks very much like a nuclear explosion today and therefore he repeats this for the future he says when these signs appear let those from Judea he seems to refer pretty specifically to those living in today's Judea flee to the mountains let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house like there is no time you should really do in a jiffy let no one in the field go back to get his cloak how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers that again is a reference why especially to pregnant women and nursing mothers it seems again to be a reference to something of the nature of radiation or things like this pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath again this seems to show that according to the plane where Jesus could foresee the future it was not yet decided when this thing will happen this was still a fluid thing and uh, he kind of saw that if this would happen in a winter time or on a Sabbath day it would be worse for reasons which are more or less clear <coughs> for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again such a statement is at least scary because remember in the story of the world we had the flood of Noah and we had the, dis the destruction of Atlantida and we had a meteorite falling and wiping out the dinosaurs and we had a lot of things in this world and when a spirit like Jesus says it will be like it has never been in this world and will not be equaled afterwards as well it's pretty much time to do Ashvini Mudra because it's really, really bitter. So in this way, uh, nobody should wait for this with joy because if it would be terrible for the pregnant women and nursing mothers and what all he says, that it's never to be equaled again, uh, you can think about it only with shiver. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive but for the sake of the elect those days will be shortened he means that because of the divine consciousness wants the civilization somehow to survive and because uh, of the so-called elect ones the ones who are supposed to make the bridge with the next Satya Yuga 
although the, this natural disaster or whatever it is, nuclear war or whatever, or all of them together, should have had much more bitter consequences, it will be somehow shortened miraculously. It will be like an intervention of Shambhala, of the divine consciousness of the angels, creating a kind of unexpected miracle in which while you'd expect that things will be bitter for 50 years, actually they will be bitter only for three years and then somehow things will start entering back into normality. And Jesus claims that this is kind of artificially done, deliberately done somehow through the will of God for the sake of the elect ones, which means somehow for the sake of the continuation of the spiritual of the of the humanity of the existence of something spiritual there. At that time, if anyone says to you, look here is the Messiah or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. Basically, here is a prophecy which describes, of course, there are many, many gaps in this description. There are many holes in it. Many people will ask, but what about this, but what about this? Well, many things are not known, but at least some hints have been given. And this is not something written by the Apostle John in his revelation, or by Saint Malachius, or by Nostradamus. These are things supposed to come directly from the mouth of Jesus. You find their equivalent in case you think the church fiddled too much with them. You can find their equivalent in some of the Gnostic scriptures which were not fiddled by the church. Uh, and still there you find uh, these apocalyptical things which uh, come, some of them directly again from the mouth of Jesus. So when it comes from the mouth of Jesus, uh, one has to pay attention because exactly as he predicted some things of the early Jewish history, he keeps on telling things of the world which are frightening. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there is a vulture, there the vultures, the vultures will gather. Basically, he says, of course, the vultures are gathering. It's just the nature of the demonic forces, of the egoistic temperament of man, that people will try to take advantage. There are people who try to take advantage of this religious thing. Even nowadays, in the 20th, 21st century, in an age of rationalism, there is a lot of these New Age crappy things happening and so on. But imagine if we'd be in a total turmoil in a post-nuclear war time or whatever, you can imagine, it's like so many movies speculate on what could happen and so many characters a la Messiah, a la Prophet, a la whatever, which actually would be nothing but demons clad in sheepskin because uh, basically there is nothing divine. So the vultures are gathering wherever there is a carcass, therefore surely the egoism will push some people into assuming such roles just because they can get an advantage of it. This is the food for the vultures. The vultures live out of this. But he says before this, even as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Basically, Jesus claims that his second coming 
marking the end of time is a global phenomenon. It's not just like a human being being born in France and then becoming a big guru and started doing spiritual work. He is giving a vision of this, which is something which is global, stereoscopic, holographic, paranormal, miraculous, whatever, like the lightning from the east is visible even through the west. Maybe this wants to be also a reference that it comes from the east somehow, and uh, like maybe it should be taken literally, but metaphorically it's obvious. Such a global thing, such a grand thing, cannot be hidden, and nobody should be afraid that they are not going to see it, like, well, maybe Jesus showed up, but we don't know. Jesus says, don't worry, you will know. It's like the lightning which can be seen all over the sky. So it's something which is not a very peculiar, uh, particular thing hidden in some corner of the earth. Immediately after the distress of those days, and then he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This denotes <coughs> at least an astronomical cataclysm, comets, meteorites, whatever, global clouding of the atmosphere in which you don't see the sun and the moon and the heavenly bodies being shaken, this can mean only orbital disorders, earthquakes, things of the kind. Therefore, here, if you take it literally, when Jesus doesn't, he uses the prophet Isaiah, he means something which is indeed frightening, indeed global. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. This is very hard to understand what's the sign of the Son of Man. Of course, the Christian church, the early one, preached that that would be a cross, that there will appear a cross in the sky. Uh, many things are a cross. Remember that even the Tibetan Buddhists, many schools, they have a crucial dorje, two dorjes put like this, and theoretically from a distance when you look at it, even that is a cross. Many things can be a cross on one hand because it's an archetypal symbol, Many people have said that that means a cross of the planets, like they are speculating that some astrological Nostradamus prophecy referring to a cross position of the planets, actually that means that the cross appeared in the sky, like it's an astrological configuration of planets. Nobody really has interpreted that thoroughly. What is the sign of man and what will appear in the sky? It can mean anything from an astrological configuration, to something which is freely visible on the sky one way or another. We don't know about that. That's one of the mysterious things which is to be revealed because Jesus himself says many of these things I tell you, but we actually don't know when they will happen and how. And he continues, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Basically it means Jesus announces that his second coming is not like a guru testing, changing, saving, announcing. He is coming like closing down the market. So he is coming like full authority, like indeed what he is supposed to be. So basically in that time his authority is not a discussable thing. Like you cannot crucify him when he comes the second time. Because there he doesn't come like a Tom, Dick and Harry. Like he did first time, almost. He is coming basically as a warranted messenger of God, 
to sort out the things. Therefore, he says, with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Basically, this is a typical apocalyptic messianic promise that those who stand to the end, those who respect their spirituality to the end, they survive. Remember that he says that they will gather them even from one end of the heavens to the other, which means think. Uh, Paramahamsa Yogananda is dead, physically speaking, right now, but he must exist somewhere under some form. Is Paramahamsa Yogananda one of the elect ones of Jesus in the meaning that he is one of the spirits that has reached purity and spirituality and salvation and ever? Of course, most people would presume yes. If there is somebody saved around, if there were a few people saved in the 20th century, most probably Paramahamsa Yogananda must have been one of them because he was an angel of a man. He was a, such a spiritual person. And basically, it doesn't mean therefore only physically. It means even the spirits which are in their locations throughout paradises and astral worlds will also be summoned like a kind of drawing the line and making the final accounts of this manifestation. So it's a messianic view which refers to something really, really global, really uh, metaphysical. And then <coughs> he continues. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Basically, he tells them that some of the things which he said will happen within a generation time, and those are the things which indeed have happened, as I told you, uh, culminating with the destruction of the temple and the scattering of the Jewish culture of the Jewish population in the four winds and so on. That, however, should not be mixed here. There are talks which are merged, which speak about different times of history, and some of them they refer to the end of days, some of them they refer to an immediate period in history. I told you that historians, historians actually, have uh, even... Uh, claim that some of the prophecies which are made by Jesus, at least here, they refer also to a period of time which happened around the year 1000. At the time when there started this epoch of crusades and other things, when the Catholic Church started going really berserk and doing a lot of stupid things, around the year 1000, 1050, 1100, many events happened which again fit with the prophecies of Jesus. And basically, they have studied all kinds of anthropological and symbolic things. I don't even know all of them. And it's like these prophecies have a recurrence of a thousand years. They happened in the year 50, they happened in the year 1050, and some people say, why not should they happen again in the year 2050 or whatever. Um, as I say, it seems like these prophecies of Jesus uh, he speaks from a cosmic consciousness standpoint and because of this supreme clairvoyance he, he gives a message which is valid at different levels. He like speaks one sentence and he refers to three different events. This is the talent of an enlightened mind 
with such a capability of speaking metaphorically, speaking in a language which is of multiple layers, of multiple meanings. And that is why these prophecies of Jesus himself are very complicated, they are very complex, they mean a lot of things simultaneously. <coughs> and let us continue. <coughs> no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, He is the Son of God, but only the Father. Basically what Jesus here says is incredible. Anybody should claim to predict exactly this moment, they most probably can be wrong. Not because it is impossible, but Jesus says even I don't know exactly that moment, only the Father in heaven. Which simply means, this is the ultimate manifestation of the energies of grace, creation and dissolution of the universe, and basically this is the premises, this is the realm of God the Father, of the ultimate divine consciousness itself. And that is why Jesus says in a certain way these things are predicted, are prophesied, and they will happen. And he says, he's very sure, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So he pre seems to be pretty confident that what he says shall be so. But at the same time, he says the time is not known. It's like God preserves spontaneity. It's like the ultimate decision still belongs to the cosmic consciousness. One day, one morning, God wakes up and burps and then does it. And it's kind of who knows when. We never know when that burp is coming up like this. And that is why Jesus says don't really try to speculate. Be prepared because it may happen and you may have clues. You know, we, we in the advanced groups here in some of these lectures, we speculated on uh, all kinds of dates which are given by all kinds of people, the prophecies of Malachius or the Mayan calendar or this or that. Sure, there are a lot of prophecies which seem to make sense and to point towards a pretty urgent <coughs> unfolding of events, but at the same time, Jesus says, if even I don't know it, if even I, Jesus, don't know it, then don't try to speculate on it. Not because it's forbidden. Don't try to speculate on it because it seems that God preserves the last word at this and it's simply a matter of spontaneity of right now, here and now. When this here and now is, suddenly it's there upon you and therefore it's not worth speculating on it. Remember that although he claims himself to be the Son of God, and does that more or less almighty and omniscient, at the same time he says, even I don't know when this will happen. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The days of Noah means flood, destruction, death, cataclysm. So basically he says it again, it will be like in the days of Noah, which means a big mess. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. 
it cannot be expressed more clearly than that. It says people will keep on marrying and giving in marriage, eating and sleeping, and when it will hit them, it will hit them. It will hit them in an instant, just like that. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Here he wants to say there are two meanings to this sentence. He shows first of all that the will of God decides. It's a matter of the will of God. It's a matter of the grace. You cannot really know who's who and what is what. Wait and see. So first of all he underlines the thing that the effect is completely unexpected, surprising. Some people point to the fact that it may mean that actually he means that like 50% of the world population would be wiped out or something thereabout. Like every one out of two will be kind of wasted. So in that way uh, you can meditate on both meanings. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into. So, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is almost like on purpose, it's like almost like God wanted to make it difficult, like, you know, but of course it is normal to be so because it's a spontaneity and it cannot be. Then some people would do shit until one year before and then they will say, well, now it's time to start preparing, mm. you know, and start mending our ways. It cannot be that way. You cannot make dirty deals with God, such as manipulating in such cheap ways. And therefore, it is completely absurd. I mean, either you are having a clean spirituality or if not, it will be your nature will betray you because it will be more or less by surprise. So he says, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Basically, if you look at the world of today, you will see that the way people are brought up makes that people don't expect. There was this big alarm, the year 2000, years apocalyptic thing, and it's kind of, it's exactly the time where everybody will say, yeah, yeah, grandmother's superstition, yeah, right, relax, and so on. It is possible that even 2012 comes, and the 23rd of December comes, and the last freaks who believe in the Mayan calendar, they are also turned off, and then on 2013, on the 5th of June, zap, and then everybody was caught like this, you know, like, uh-oh, now we, the last time we expect it will happen will be 23rd of December 2012. But it didn't come and then we thought it was never going to happen. Wishful thinking, see Jesus says, better think twice about this. And then he says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the Master has put in charge of the servants in his household? to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Basically, let's read this again. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? 
It's like you have been given a responsibility, this responsibility being given being the fact of living your life right, living your life properly. And this responsibility may mean even taking care of others. And he says, who will be that? It will be good for the servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Like the master asks the servant, please do this. And then he returns unexpectedly. And the servant is doing the right job. The master is pleased. Ah, a devoted servant. Somebody who holds his word. Somebody who holds his promise. I gave him a job and he's not sleeping on the job. He's not trying to cheat. He's actually doing. I came home unexpectedly and there he is doing the job as I told him. Then, automatically that servant deserves more confidence because he has proven himself to be right. So Jesus says, the human beings who, in whom God puts confidence like this and who justify that confidence will be promoted. He says, I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions, like become the son of God, become the child of God, reach enlightenment, because it's like a test. Are you trying to cheat on God or are you always there? Are you 24-7 on the job or you are trying to just say, oh well, if it is coming on the 23rd of December 2012, then I better start doing some preparing for that. What if it doesn't come then? Are you still able to continue till the day of your death? That's the kind of spirit that Jesus is speaking about. It doesn't matter when it comes. There have been people who lived 500 years ago and they also didn't know if it will come now or way after my life will be over, hundreds of years or whatever. This doesn't mean that they should have been less vigilant. Maybe we are vigilant because we say, well, maybe we are living in those times. Maybe not. Maybe all these things will happen in 300 years. I think some Tibetan prophecies, they tend to localize this kind of events in 350 years from now. And many of you say, well, we'll be long dead. Maybe we'll be in another incarnation already by that time. We'll be long dead since uh, that time, in that time. So why worry? This kind of challenging thing will not happen in my lifetime. You never know, really. You never know. It's all of it meant to confuse you. It was to come, it is to come much later, it is tomorrow, it is to, you don't know. And therefore, the only thing to do is to live like this, like Jesus. He is what He is all the time. He is not what He is just because the sh it's a showdown and He has to show off in any way. He is what He is because that's what He is. So Jesus simply says, become that. You cannot fake it. The cosmic consciousness is way too sophisticated and intelligent to be able that you should cheat, that anybody can imagine that they can play games and pretend that they are holy or whatever. No doubt that there would be a lot of uh, fake religious people who might suddenly uh, show off like high pi how pious they are and how much they have waited for this and blah blah blah. And if you know, it doesn't work like this. You cannot fool. If you believe that the cosmic consciousness can be fooled by such a thing, it means you believe God is completely idiotic and uh, we should reconsider. So basically Jesus says, such this servant, you will be put in charge like he is himself, the same person, the same type. But suppose that the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. 
the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with a, hy- with a hypocrite where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth basically it is very clear and uh, it's very bitter at the same time but it is so painfully true Jesus continues with this teaching and uh, there are basically three chapters left theoretically we should have uh, been able 25, 26 and 7 we should have been able to go with them as I promised uh, I was trying to make two this week on the other hand uh, there was this uh, demand this uh, request from people that we should make this lecture on the nature of space and time according to uh, yoga, according to the tantric vision, and uh, I will try to do that on Thursday. But it will be very good for many of you on Thursday. Uh, I'm not advising you really to fast, although fasting makes the mind more clear, but at least on Thursday when you want to participate to this lecture, uh, I'm advising you that in advance in that day you should work a lot on Vishuddha, on Ajna and on Sahasrara. You should come for that lecture after having worked at least two hours on these three chakras above, especially Vishuddha and especially Ajna of them, because uh, you have to reach an understanding. I'll try to open you to some understanding which is unusual. So, uh, no Jesus lecture actually on this Thursday. Next week we'll see. I'm doing it now because many people live on Sunday already and they've asked and asked and I said, okay, even in the last moment, let's uh, give them that possibility. And therefore, um, Thursday, exceptionally, there will be no Jesus lecture. There will be this one about the nature of space and time. But remember, if you will not work on the high chakras, it will be much, much more difficult, both for you as individuals and for the whole group. You will drag down the whole group. Uh, because it's a global understanding, it's a global field of energy, and that is why I'm advising you and also asking you that on Thursday, if you want to join this lecture, please work intensely on these chakras. Ajna, most important, Vishuddha, second as important, Sahasrara. Spend some two hours in that day working there. I will stop here, it's very late already. We had a short session today, but I managed to finish one whole paragraph. Let's see if you have questions, problems, other issues that you'd like to clarify on this, after which we'll stop for tonight. Please. What is so special about keep it, keeping the Sabbath? It's not. It's simply that human beings should not become animalic because of work. While Karl Marx, our good friend, says that work has made man, uh, most of the spiritualists think that work idiotizes man, makes man idiotic and animal, especially the robotic mechanical work. And that is why, um, of course, not the spiritual work, the work, this work, like if, if you study, study, for example, a simple farmer who from morning till evening works like an animal, physical work, plowing with oxen and whatever. I've seen such people. I've lived in the countryside and I've seen. These people become very little spiritual. Very little. Because their life is so hard. They eat a lot. They are gross. They are just walking through the mud and everything. And for them life is such a mulakharistic, such a vital thing 
that basically they don't have wings to fly, they don't go anywhere. That's why at least the minimum you could do is this, knowing that some people easily become workaholic and they can just fill up their lives with work because they haven't got anything else, and knowing that some people because of this become gross and uh, idiotic, the old Jews, they simply made this rule that the seventh day, every seventh day is a resting day where you're supposed to do nothing but think of God. And actually the old uh, Jewish culture has been pretty good at this. It has even tried to make it absurdly strict so that really no smart ass should find some uh, really twisted way to cheat on it. Like, almost you can do nothing. You know that you are Jews and you know in Israel some of the fundamentalistic Jews, they don't even switch on the electricity on the Sabbath day or whatever, and so on. It's like really so many rules and so absurdly, dogmatically strict, because, you know, the human beings are clever demons. They are clever devils. They will always find the trick to do it in another way and say, haha, Moses never thought about this, but see, we can do it like this and find a way to cheat on it. And then it's kind of putting it absurdly strict, so that how will you cheat when it is so absurdly strict? And basically, the idea was, whoa, 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 one day every week at least, at least give one-seventh of your life to God. Okay, six days per week you work like an animal, and you eat like an animal, and you fuck like an animal, and you do whatever. At least one day out of seven, stop, pull the brakes, and think only about God and do nothing else. At least you will give one-seventh of your time, one-seventh of your life, one-seventh of your energy to God. So it's better than nothing. Surely it would be good to give seven days out of seven to God. People like Jesus did exactly that, but not everybody is like that. Then at least the average person, we can find a minimal level, a rock-bottom level, like at least give to God a little, it's better than nothing. And that is why this was perpetuated in many religions to find a holy day periodically, usually weekly. Some in Hinduism, sometimes they find it two times per month or whatever, but the rhythm is generally once a week, and that day don't do anything profane, just do things which are spiritual, divine. It's not that the Sabbath day in itself is important. In uh, Jewish uh, theology, uh, they say that, okay, that day is actually the day where God took rest or whatever. These are all metaphoric things, right? They are parables. They represent a reality because God has no time. So when it's Sabbath for God, God is always on Sabbath or whatever you want to put it. The thing is that it's a teaching meant for the human beings at least to force them to have at least one day out of seven <coughs> more spiritual a little bit of prayer, a little bit of peace of mind, not so much, uh, you know, animalized and tired because of work and so on. Just stay, rest, think, mm. pray, do something beautiful, do something. So why does he worry that, uh, pray that he won't be in the winter or in the Sabbath? This I don't know, I don't understand. He says if it will be on a Sabbath, you know how it is? how I understand it, at least how it comes to me, it's exactly like if the electricity breaks down in Kopangan on Sunday evening. They are not workers, they are on holiday. And then if the electricity breaks on Monday, all the workers are on shift. But on Sunday there is a minimal number 
because it's holiday and therefore any defect or any public problem which happens on a Saturday evening or a Sunday is much more difficult to remedy. In the same way, if there starts some global shit on a Sabbath and people are on holiday, you can be sure that it goes rock bottom immediately because indeed then it's difficult. So maybe Jesus had this uh, vision of the things that on Sabbath it would make it simply worse. It, it actually happened in the uh, Kippur War. Right, exactly. Exactly. That's an excellent example. Exactly. Yeah. I hope you all know it. It's a war, you can give the historical details, where the Arabs attacked on a great religious festival in a day when it was holiday and it took such it was such a surprise it's a that it, day. it was so a you fasting fast day. Your sins it's you just fast on the and no, they no. caught they and caught the Israeli know. army at a very very low point where it was almost dramatically low and it was almost perdition. Yeah, my brother got shot at this war. I'm sorry? My brother got shot at this war. Is um, the story of Adam and Eve is that the beginning of the Kali Yuga cycle? No, the beginning of the Kali Yuga cycle is Noah. <coughs> Those are even older yugas, of which we don't know much. Not from the Bible, at least. The Judeo-Christian tradition does not record, for example, Atlantida. Not in any way. It records in the book of Genesis. If you remember, there is a paragraph even before Noah, which suddenly speaks about giants, that the giants are getting nasty to the daughters of man. And it's like, who are these giants? Suddenly, the Bible talks about some giants, which are becoming very, very naughty, and very, very bad, and who are these, gi- these giants? These are brim, it's like uh, crumbles of memories of something very, very old, which is not systematic, and so on. But if you want to read about giants, you read more in Edgar Cayce, or in the old <coughs> Vedic texts, which indeed say that the people of the previous Satya Yuga, they were six meters tall, and they were living up to a thousand years of age. So that's probably that we're talking about the remain the reminiscences of that race of people who are much taller than today, four to six meters tall, and whatever. So in this way, the Bible does not record too much. It's very, very chaotic in recording things before Noah. Not so that's not you could assume that Adam is the beginning of all. Sure, Adam and Eve are supposed to be a symbol of the beginning of everything. The fall of man is the fall of paradise. It's like losing your divine condition, losing your immortality, becoming two instead of one, male and female, uh, attached to the lust of sex and to all the other things, and basically losing your immortality, losing paradise, being separate from God. Would you, would you say that if we uh, meditate on uh, revelations that we can more in um, accordance with maybe what you're supposed to be doing at this time? or sure. Generally, the spiritual masters of the last centuries, they have demonstrated through their own lives, and they have spoken pretty clearly about what people are supposed to be. That means it's in a certain way, it's pretty clear. You, sh- you are supposed to have a spiritual life. You are supposed to have a life of aspiration, or and not to fall into these terrible patterns which are happening around. Do you, do you find that some of the like shamanic uh, 
like from the Native Americans, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of folklore about the end of times also, yeah. and uh, do you find that that is just as uh, valid? Or? I guess that somewhere all these things fit. I guess that as everywhere else, there must be also some hysterical, wishful thinking, phantasmagoria, because imagination can easily mix mix up into the reality for many people, but at the same time there must be a core of truth and that core of truth somehow must fit with the greater truth. All these people who had clairvoyance and who are seers or whatever, somehow they have tapped to the same great reservoir of knowledge from where it's kind of looking at an elephant from different angles. It may look slightly different, but still it's the same elephant. Enough for tonight, Thursday.